Church family, would you join me in prayer as we open God's word together? Heavenly Father, as we move into this time where we have the distinct privilege of opening your word and studying it together as a family of faith, I pray that you would truly instruct our hearts, that you would change our wills, that you would change our hearts from the inside out, that we we may be a people who are receptive to your word and not hardened to it. I thank you that you give us truth, God, and I thank you for um, Christian brothers like the Apostle Paul, who is not afraid to exhort the church. And so as we look at these words today, God, I pray that we would have hearts that are openness toward your exhortation, toward your instruction. Would we be humble this morning, realizing that you are God and we are not. May you change our hearts today. We give you praise in advance for everything that you're going to do through your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. All right, good morning. I would like to invite you to open a Bible with me, whether it's your own Bible or one in the pews, to that passage that Randy just read. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. So go ahead and make your way there. If this is your first week with us here at First SF, we have spent the last month or so going verse by verse through this book that is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church full of new Christians in the city of Thessalonica. Earlier, Paul had planted this church. He had started the church and got it going, but due to hostility toward the message of Jesus, they kicked Paul and his co-partners, Timothy and Silas, out of the city of Thessalonica. And so in his absence, Paul is a Thessalonian. And we have two of them, what we now know of as first and second Thessalonians. In both of these letters that he writes to these Christians, it is evident that he has great love and genuine affection for these new believers. And one of the ways that we see this is that he greets them in the same way, both in First and Second Thessalonians. He says these words, he says, grace and peace to you, a very significant greeting. Now, when we greet one another, whether it's on an email or a letter, or maybe you haven't seen someone in a while, uh, we often throw out greetings that have very little meaning or significance, right? We email somebody and we, we say, hope you are doing well. We see someone and we say, man, it is great to see you. But most of the time, it, it may be okay to see them, but is it really great? Is it really, are we really hoping that they're just doing so well? We say things that don't really um, match our actions and our feelings toward another person. I'm guilty of this. Uh, I was thinking back this week on my first time as a, a staff member on a church team. I was in a church and there was an individual in that church who did something that, that was pretty painful, pretty hurtful toward me. And I began to have a heart of resentment toward this person. Well, not long after that, the person had left the church for other reasons and I hadn't seen them. It had been about two years and I walked into a restaurant and there he is sitting on the right side of the restaurant. Now, what should I have done? I should have gone straight to him and said, hello, right? What did I do? I avoided eye contact and I began to sprint pretty much the other direction, right? Well, unfortunately, as I'm going the other direction, I hear this, Ryan, I know the voice. I look over and it's him and I put a smile on my face and I go up to him. It is great to see you. Now, Clearly, that was a lie. It's a lie that needed to be confessed. It was not true. My actions of avoiding the person, of running the other direction, did not match up with the greeting that I gave. 
Now, I think when we read these words, grace and peace to you, we can read them as we do our own greetings. That it's just something Paul says. But what you need to understand in this text and also his letters to the Philippians and his letter to the Galatians, the Corinthians, all of these churches that he loves so much, Paul's life matches his greeting. In every way, Paul's life is lived out. He toils, he prays so that these new Christians might know and greatly experience both the grace and peace of God. When he says grace and peace to you, he, his life is in alignment with his greeting. Uh, last week we talked about that investment of time and prayer. And we said that Paul in all of his Christian relationships had two goals. And we were to have these same goals in our relationships with one another. We said his goal was to establish them and to exhort them. Now, if you were here last week, you know that to establish a person meant to add what was lacking so that they could be strengthened. And so we often see this with new believers. We come alongside a new believer and we give them new truth. We help them to understand doctrine, the foundations of Christianity. We help them to understand skills like witnessing and prayer and how to read the Bible. We, we want to add something that's new so that they will be established. That's to establish. But on the other hand, he says that his other goal is to exhort And to exhort doesn't mean to add something new. It means simply to remind them through challenge or through through encouragement of what they already know. To encourage them, to bring them to that point. Uh, My prayer for First SF, for this church family, is that over these coming two, three years, that we would be a community. And I mean that, not just from the pastoral staff, but we would be a community that lives to invest in the spiritual lives of one another. That's my prayer for this church. That as others, outsiders, look into this church in the way that we love one another, invest in one another, they would say this is a church that seeks to establish and exhort one another. Now as we move toward that, we need to come to an understanding of what is this exhortation. We need examples to emulate. Thankfully, there are many examples in the scriptures of what we can emulate when it comes to exhortation. And in this text today, as we read it, what Paul provides us is an incredible example of God honoring exhortation. When you read this text, you find out what it looks like in real life to encourage another believer in their faith and their spiritual growth. Now, as we go into this, I want us to read, let's read, start in verse 1. If you would read it with me. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The very first thing that we see in this text is the universal need for exhortation. We see the need for exhortation. One of the common issues that I see in the modern day church is that the only time that we exhort one another. The only time that we come alongside another believer is when it is very noticeable that things have gone wrong. So in other words, what we do, we, we may exhort another believer if we see that they're very publicly sinning. They're sinning in a very public way. We may challenge them. We may exhort them. Or we may, and that's a still a big may, we may encourage somebody if we know that their circumstances are clearly difficult. They have lost a family member. Or they're battling a severe illness. In those moments, yes, we come alongside and exhort one another. But in the day-to-day life of the Christian, I find that very few of any of us exhort one another in an ongoing way, whether we realize that something is wrong or not. 
We only do it when things are really, really bad. I think we have this mindset that, that they're fine, I'm fine, and we'll just kind of stay in our own lane of life unless it becomes very clear that the opposite is true. We assume that everyone is doing well. The way that that plays out here on Sunday mornings is oftentimes we'll come in and everybody has a smile on their face. So we assume what? We assume they're good. They don't have a major sin they're struggling with. They don't have a major conflict in their life. They don't have a major temptation they're dealing with. They don't have a major uh, trial that they're going through. Everybody is good. And the result is that we do very little of what Paul calls exhortation to one another. Friends, I would submit to you this morning that that is a very tragic and it is a very dangerous mistake in the Christian life. Because both experience and the scriptures speak to the truth that no matter how old a person is, no matter how spiritually mature a person is, no matter how many smile on their face on a Sunday morning, what the scriptures say is we desperately need regular exhortation. We need to be challenged. We need to be warned. We need to be cautioned. We need to be encouraged if we are going to grow in faith. A uh, recent example of this, over the last few months, there have been a number of prominent Christian leaders, if you've paid attention to any of the news, that have misrepresented Jesus in their conduct. If you read their stories, whether that's sexual misconduct or, or, or other allegations, what you find is that almost every single scenario, these individuals lack what this scripture talks about. They lack other people in their life that are constantly bringing exhortation. Why is that? Because I think sometimes we look around and we assume, especially if they're a Christian leader, we assume that they don't need accountability. We assume that they don't need regular encouragement. We, we assume that, that they're living out the daily basics of the faith, that they're spending time with God, that they're growing in their walk with God. And if we do that for leaders, how much more do we do that for one another? In this text, Paul does not only get into people's lives when things are falling apart, He gets in when things are going really, really well. And that's why if you look at verse 1, what does he say? He says, you are walking in a way that pleases God. But does he end there? No, he says, do so more and more. You look down at verse 10, he says, you are loving others as God has taught you. Do so more and more. Paul's encouragement and his warnings in this text are not prompted by hearing that the church is failing. They are prompted by his belief that even the most successful churches, that even the most spiritual Christians are in need of ongoing exhortation to press on to be vigilant in faithfulness and holiness and spiritual growth. I would submit to you this morning that one of Satan's most destructive lies is that the brothers and sisters that sit around you this morning do not need the ongoing exhortation that you have to offer. Right alongside that is the lie that you do not need the ongoing exhortation that they have to offer. If you're writing notes, I would like you to write down these verses. And and I would challenge you, church, memorize these verses. Because if you really believe them, you will live differently. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I read this last week. I'm going to read it again. Paul says this, or the writer of Hebrews says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's saying, be very, very careful. How do we be careful? But verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Now, what I find notice, notable about that text is that he is not writing to pastors. Are pastors included? Yes, but he is writing to the church. If the only ongoing exhortation that you are getting is from me on a Sunday morning, let me tell you, you're not getting the ongoing exhortation that you need. He looks to each one of you and he says, you have a role to play in this. He said, as long as there is a day called today, then one of the primary goals of that day is for you to offer ongoing exhortation so that no one else in this room gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Two questions as we start out, as we think about this need. Question one is this, have you opened your life to this kind of ongoing exhortation? I mean that. Have you truly opened your life? Are there people that you meet with regular, trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that are there to challenge you with the truth that you know, that are there to encourage you with the truth that you know? In those moments when you need to be rebuked, are there anybody, is there any person in your life that is there that can give you older going rebuke? It does not matter this morning if you are 15 years old or if you are 75 years old. Does not matter if you're a ministry leader here at First SF or you are a brand new Christian. The text this morning shows us that we need this kind of exhortation. Is your life open to that from others? Question number two is do you provide that kind of ongoing exhortation to the brothers and sisters of Christ in your life? Do you actually give that? Do you point them toward these scriptural truths? Or have you been persuaded to believe that their spiritual growth is none of your business? Have you been persuaded by the lie that it's not your responsibility as a fellow brother and sister? I would encourage you, there's a great need in the church today for exhortation. I pray that we would be a church that lives this out. As you think about this, what does exhortation look like? Uh, What is the content of exhortation? Because that's very important. We need to understand what did Paul's exhortation consist of? If you look at verse 2. It says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about the specific exhortation that Paul brings. But before we do, look at verse 2, because it says in here that our exhortation is not to be primarily our own opinions about what we think other people should or should not do. Our exhortation to one another, our conversations with one another should not consist of what we learned on Ellen or what we read for in Wall Street Journal or, or what we read in our, the latest self-help book. What Paul points to here is that true exhortation always consists of the truth of God's word. His exhortation in all of his letters, he goes to great lengths to show them that I'm not just giving you my opinion here. When he gives instruction, he says, I'm not giving you my instructions. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm giving you the instructions that I receive from who? My Lord, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the apostles had been commanded to do. If you look at the Great Commission, a passage that almost all of us probably have heard and know, I want you to think about what he says. Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's talking about a person coming to the knowledge of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. But what does he go on to say? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the picture we get here is as Paul goes out and shares the gospel of salvation and people believe the gospel and people are baptized, his first priority with these new Christians is to show them what Jesus had instructed. 
to show them what Jesus had revealed to be a life that is pleasing to God. He wanted them to understand that the gospel wasn't just about eternity. The gospel is about here and now. It's about how we treat the people around us. It's how, about how we use our money. It's about what we do with our sexuality. It's about our, what we do at work. It's about all of these things. You see, I'm grateful this morning that Jesus' instructions that have been given to us now throughout the New Testament by all the biblical writers, they are not grounded in what popular opinion of that culture. They're not grounded in the popular opinion of our current culture. But you think about this. If Jesus is truly who he says he is, it means that he was there before the creation of the world. He has always been. He will always be. Which means his instructions can be trusted. His instructions are alignment with what is true, whether we perceive them to be true or not. They've been given to us for our benefit. So with that in mind, our exhortation to one another should always be in alignment, not with our personal opinion, not with our feelings, not with the other person's feelings, but they always should be in alignment with what God says in his word. We encourage one another, we challenge one another, we rebuke one another, not with our own thoughts, but with what got the Thessalonians, and he he has the greater perspective. Well, as Paul thinks about the Thessalonians, and he thinks about their culture and the temptations that they face, he gives three specific exhortations. He calls out three areas of life that he wants them to consider. The first is this, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Look at verse 3. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. There's no question this morning that the sexual revolution, especially here in San Francisco of the 60s and the 70s, has brought about significant change in the way that we as Americans perceive sex and, and sexuality. We live in a culture where literally sex is everywhere. People look to sex like um, we look to God. You think about this. Individuals look to sex for pleasure. Individuals look to sex for status. They look to sex for identity. They look to sex for security. They look to sex for significance. It has become very much a God in our culture. While this reality may be somewhat new here in the United States of America, it is not new when you pull back the, the picture of human history. In fact, in many ways, uh, most scholars would submit that, that the sexual, um, the culture of Thessalonica was even more highly sexualized than the culture that we live in in America today. These Thessalonians had grow, grown up in a culture consumed by sex, and they had likely been very active participants in that culture. Sex in all of its forms outside the, the good boundaries of marriage was a common part of their existence. And so when Jesus came and he, he came and he shared the good news and they heard this amazing news about who Jesus was and, and all of a sudden they were told a, what a life pleasing to God looked like, they realized it meant a radical departure from the way they had lived in this area of sexuality. They realized that to live for Jesus actually meant to, to turn from one way of life that they had been living in to live a brand new life in this area. 
they were to abstain from sexual immorality. Which, if you read, is, a, is the word porneia. It's the most general term for sex outside of the covenantal relationship of marriage between husband and a wife. But like Jesus, Paul takes it even further than that. Because he doesn't just start with behavior, right? He talks about desire. He uses that phrase, if you look at it, he talks about the passion of lust, meaning that the issue here is not just behavior, but it's also sexual desires that are dominating their lives in ways that they should not be. In our own day, I would think of desires that lead to fantasizing over other people or the the prevalent use of pornography. It's desire also that matters. It's just not what you do outwardly. It's your, your inward thoughts. It's what you're putting your mind to. Now, in all of this, I want to be very clear. Sex is created by God. It is created as good. It is within the boundaries that he has given. It, sexual desire in itself is very, very good. It has its proper place. But that's not Paul's point here. What he's saying in this text is that sexual desire was made to be governed and guided by two primary concerns. And you see it in verse 4. Holiness and honor towards others. Let's look at verse 4. It says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and God, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, lust is what sexual desire becomes when honor and holiness are missing from the equation. Think about it for a moment, just this word honor. You look at the scriptures and you find that God established this relationship, amazing relationship called marriage, where a man and woman make a lifelong covenant to honor one another in the way that they are faithful to one another, in the way they serve one another, in the way they sacrifice and love one another. They are called to a covenant of honor. So here's the thing. When we say to another person, I want you to satisfy my sexual desire, but I don't want to enter into that covenant relationship of forever honoring you. What are we saying? I want you to bring pleasure, but I don't want you. Lust is the sexual desire minus a commitment to fully honor the other person. That's why when we sin in this area, this word sexual immorality, when we sin here, we are never seeking the highest good of others. We're only seeking what's good for ourselves in that moment. We're not seeking the good of the person we're sinning with. We're not seeking the good of the person we're fantasizing about. We're not seeking the good of that person in that pornographic image that you're looking at. You're not seeking the good of that spouse that that person you're having sex with is married to. You're not seeking the good of others. You cannot tell me, cannot convince me that Christian love is what motivates this kind of action. It is selfish desire. And that's why Paul says in this text, he reminds them, it's not because they weren't living this out. He is simply reminding them, we as Christians are to be different. We are called to love and honor other people. We are not called to use other people for our own selfish desires. If you think this is a light matter, then I would point you toward point verse 6. He says, this matters. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He says, Jesus is an avenger. Jesus is one who will bring justice to this kind of sin. That's what he's getting at. Now, why would this be? Because he says, here's the thing. This is the action of those who don't know God. 
If you are living in continual sexual sin, if there is no battle, if there is no repentance, what he is saying is you cannot be a person who knows God. Therefore, Jesus was not Lord. He is going to be avenger. This is a very serious matter. You think, why does it matter so much? I mean, he goes on to say something even more than, then what does this matter? What is the big deal here? Well, he goes on to say something even more important than honoring one another. What does he say? That we are to control our body in honor and in what? Holiness. This word holiness has to do with God. Holiness means to be totally set apart for God. Verse 7, it says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, he's saying, whoever disregards this teaching, disregards not man. He's saying, you don't disregard me, Paul, but you're disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, the root issue with the lust that so many of us struggle with is regard for God. Holiness means to live your life with supreme regard for a holy God. Lust is the opposite of that. Lust is sexual desire that is not governed or guided by a supreme regard for the holiness of God. Friends, if you're here this morning, and I would imagine there are many of us that struggle in this area, whether it's with our thought life or whether it's in our behavior in this area of sexuality. Let me just tell you, the greatest thing you can do as you look at this text, if you're listening to this text, is not just to put accountability into your life. Those things are important. We need accountability. We need boundaries. We need all those things. But what Paul says here is if you want to battle over the next 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years and you want to grow in victory, it begins with simply knowing our holy God. It begins with growing in our understanding of who God is. Because the more you know him, the more you experience him, not just know him with your mind, but the more you know him, you truly know him, the more you're going to be battling in this area. He says, don't live like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says, avoid sexual immorality. He exhorts his fellow Christians in this area because he knows there's constant temptation in their culture, just as there's constant temptation in ours. He says, that's not you. You are driven by holiness. Then he moves to a second area in verse 9, if you would look at it. It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. So on the one hand, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. What does he then turn to? He says, but do love one another. In the same way that you honor others, he now says, love one another. Now, just to be clear again, He's not saying this because the church in Thessalonica is not living it out. It's the exact opposite. He says, in fact, your love, Thessalonians, has been now spread through all of Macedonia. That's the entire region. It would be like us saying, your love is known all throughout the Bay Area, from San Jose to Oakland to San Francisco to Marin. It is known everywhere. The Thessalonians were living this out. They loved radically. Uh, One of the key things that their love probably exhibited itself through was taking care of the financial needs of the other Christians all in that region. Thessalonica was the hub of of that life. It was the most well-off city in that whole area. It was the Roman provincial capital. And so they had funds that the other Christians didn't have. So these Christians were radically loving the people around them. They were meeting their needs. They were seeking to invest in their lives and to help them to grow in holiness and in their walk with God. They were loving well. But what does Paul say? 
says, do so more and more. In other words, what he's saying is, don't be satisfied with the love that you gave yesterday. Honor God, walk with God, and love others today. Don't become stagnant in your growth, but keep pressing on. Keep growing in love. Church, I will tell you this. When I think about this church family, you guys do an incredible job of loving one another. You take care of needs where you see needs are met. You sacrifice financially more and more. Meet the needs of the people around you. I encourage you this morning, do so more and more. Don't become stagnant in the love that you have for one another. That's what Paul's getting at in this text. And I think it's important to say this. Paul is not telling them to do something that he's not willing to do himself. I mean, you think about this. In your own exhortations to others, are you willing to live by that same exhortation? Paul is. I think of Philippians 3. He says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. He's saying if you are spiritually mature, we have to think in these terms. We have to have a mindset that says more and more. I want more of Jesus. I want to love more. I want to demonstrate my love more. More and more, pressing on, leaving what's behind, moving forward in our faith. Last but not least, he gives them a word about their work ethic. Verse 11. He says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances that would be a temptation for these Christians and in uh, Thessalonica, but what we find in this text is that likely it was, there was a temptation in some way to rely on wealthy individuals so that they didn't have to work. Now, why did this happen? We don't know. We don't know if they expected the Lord's coming to come quickly so they had stopped working. We don't know if they saw that work was beneath them in some way or that they were just being lazy. We don't know. But what we do know is Paul's command is clear. He says, work with integrity. He gives them this this encouragement. He says, again, work with integrity. He reminds them to work hard with their hands, to take care of their own affairs, to to, to work in such a way that it brings peace around them, that it brings order around them. They're to work hard with integrity. All of this, he says, is for two purposes. Number one, so that they would have something to contribute. He says, if all you're doing is relying on others, you don't have anything to contribute. You're just being a drain to the community. You're being a drain to the work instead of being an addition to your work, instead of bringing something. He says, Christian, is that what you want to do? Do you really want to be a drain or do you want to add to the community? He says, work hard. But the other reason, he says, is that there are non-Christians looking at how we work. He says, there are people all around you in your workplace that if they see you just relying on others and not working yourselves, what does that say about the God that you serve? What does that say about your faith? And so he encourages and he implores them to think about outsiders, to work in such a way that it would give opportunities for them to demonstrate their faith. Now, as you think about these three exhortations that Paul makes, he gives them thoughts and questions about their thought lives, 
their sex life, how they're interacting with others, whether they're serving others and loving others or taking away from others, whether they are working hard. He talks about all these things. Now, here's a question to you. How much difference would it make in your life if you truly had people that loved you and were constantly asking you questions and giving you feedback about just these areas of life? You have people giving you feedback about your thought life, about how you're working, about how you're loving one another, how you're living out your sexuality. I don't know about you. There's not a week that goes by that I do not need exhortation in these areas. And I don't think I'm alone in this. If you're like me, my tendency is to not drift toward Jesus. It's to drift away from Jesus. My tendency is to have blind spots in my own deceitfulness of sin that I just don't see. My tendency is to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My tendency is to become stagnant in the way that I love you as a church family, in the way that I love Rachel, in the way that I love our kids, to become stagnant in that. Those are my tendencies. And that is why I desperately need the exhortation that you can bring into my life. And friend, I would say that you also need the exhortation of one another. These are key areas. These are not secondary matters. He says, if your relationship to Jesus is truly central to your life, then living a life that is pleasing to God is very important. And that's why he exhorts them. Verse three, he said, for this is the will of God. So many of you in this room wonder, what is the will of God for my life? He says this, your sanctification. That you grow in your knowledge of Jesus. That you become more and more ready, that you become more and more blameless so that when you stand before Jesus for all of eternity, you stand before him holy and blameless. At the end of the day, Paul knows that this is the work that God is doing in all of our lives. He's using one another. He's using our circumstances. He's using his word to bring this about. But the question for all of us this morning is this. Am I being a conduit for this work or am I being a hindrance? Doing my own thing. Am I exhorting others? Am I allowing others to exhort me? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing in my own lane of life? I want to give you two specific challenges as we close this morning. Challenge number one is this. In the next couple weeks, I'm going to give you two weeks. How about that? In the next two weeks, think through and find two or three other brothers or sisters in Christ that you can meet with on a regular basis for exhortation so that you can pray for one another so that you can encourage one another with God's word so that you can ask accountability questions like he pulls up about your work life and your thought life and about these things. Who are the two or three people that you can seek that are trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that will walk with you in this ongoing exhortation? I want you to write them down and then I want you to take an action step. I realize this summer you're going to be busy. You're going to be traveling, all of that, but at the very least set it up for this fall. We're going to begin meeting on this date regularly to, for this purpose. I want to challenge you to do that. If you say, Ryan, I don't have anybody in my life like that, then let me just tell you this. You're living a Lone Ranger Christian walk, and that is not a good thing long term. This morning, if that's you, I want you to come talk to me. I'd love to connect you with other believers in this church that can help you in this process. Join a community group. That's another great way to get to know others in this body. But take that step. The second challenge is this. This morning, maybe there is some confession and some repentance that needs to happen in one of these areas that Paul has exhorted us in today. This morning, are you honoring people and living a holy life in the way you live out your sexuality? Are you continually loving others more and more? 
Do you work hard and with integrity, not worshiping work, but utilizing it as an opportunity to demonstrate your faith? These are areas that I think all of us need to examine our own hearts this morning. And I challenge you this morning, if that's you, if there's sin there, let's confess that, let's repent of it, and let's find God's grace this morning together.